open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the very first verse of the Bible. After considering the wonder of God's creation, David in Psalm 8 draws two conclusions. The first, he mentions in the first and the last verse, Yahweh, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then a second conclusion, based upon this majesty of God and the immensity of creation that he's viewing at the time, then he looks inwardly and says, Oh, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Who am I that you would care anything about me? Considering the vastness of the universe, the magnificence of your power and your creation, who am I that you should care anything about me at all? As we study the Genesis creation account, beginning today in Genesis chapter uh, 1, verse 1, but also the account in chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's my earnest hope that we'll come away with similar conclusions. That we'll come away from this study with the same kind of attitude. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name over all the earth. How, how majestic are you individually as a person, God? And then secondly, we should be humbled that the God of the universe that, that spoke and all of this came into being would care about me and would care about you individually, personally, would care about you, who knows every thought that we've ever had. That God cares about you. That God knows what every molecule, what every atom in your body is doing right now. He knows the disease processes that are there, even if you don't know that they're there. He knows your finances, even if you, can, even if you don't know them to the dollar. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow, and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He cares about you deeply. In fact, this same God that created the heavens and the earth with the word of his mouth, with no apology, by the way, by, by Moses who wrote Genesis, but who created this world by the word of his mouth, cared enough about you individually that he sent his eternal son to die as a substitute for you. You see, that's the way we should come, up, uh, come away from it. Who, who am I that you're mindful of me? I don't know, but I'll tell you what, I'm grateful that the, the, the creator of the universe that did all of this cared enough about me personally that he wanted to have a relationship with me that would last forever. That should be the application that we come away from this study in Genesis with. And if you've never come to that conclusion, if you've never been outside, and it's a shame if you haven't, and seen the vastness of all the stars. One of these days I'm going to take another trip back down to Big Ben. I was there a couple years ago, but I didn't get to look through that telescope. I don't know if they let people from the public do it, but I want to do that someday. I'd like to see the vastness of the universe. I've had opportunities to see it from different desert locations. But to see the vastness of the universe, to, to consider the idea that we are a privileged planet. There's this idea out there that, that the possibility for human life, or not just human life, but any kind of life, exists on thousands upon thousands upon thousands of planets. And it's not so. N not in the known universe, anyway. It's never been found anywhere in the known universe that there's another location that could sustain life like this planet can. And given all that, he still cared about enough, us enough to put us in the right place at the right time and send his son to die for us personally. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior personally, then I want you to know that God had you personally in mind. The creator of this universe had you personally in mind when he sent his son to die as a substitute for us. We all had a need that we couldn't meet on our own, and he sent his son to die for us. And the scriptures tell us that our responsibility is faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. God loved the world so much that he gave his uniquely born son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Now that's the same God 
The God that loved the world so much, that's the same God that we'll speak about today and in the next several weeks when we talk about the creation account. That's the same God. He loved you so much. It's the same God that Paul speaks of when the Philippian jailer wanted to know, what do I need to do to be saved? Me, personally. Not the human race. Not, not all of God's creation, but me, personally. What do I need to do? Paul answered, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Now, if you've never done that, that's what you need to consider as I speak words this morning about God's incredible creative activity. So as we study Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, I earnestly hope, I earnestly hope we'll come away with bended knee, with shaky knees, and a reverent respect for the God of the universe. The emphasis, particularly in the first two verses of the Bible, is on the sovereign majesty of God. Just like David thought. And it shouldn't surprise us that David got it right. When he considered Genesis chapter 1, that's what he came away with. O Lord, our Lord, our Yahweh, our God, how majestic is your name. The sovereign majesty of God speaks to us like a, like a loudspeaker through Genesis chapter 1, particularly in the first two verses. Now listen carefully, and I say this with respect and with love. Genesis was not written to satisfy our curiosity with regard to all the details as to how God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I'm going to say that several times throughout this study so that we make sure that we're all on the same page with that. I see that coming through in our scripture reading in Job today, didn't you? There was a lack of understanding on Job's part. God's the only one that understands it all. But Genesis is not written to satisfy all of our curiosities. It will satisfy some of them, I believe. But a lot of us are really curious. <laughs> and it's not going to satisfy all of our curiosities as to the how of creation. That's not what it was written for. That's not the point. For that point, neither were the, the other 24 creation accounts that are in the Bible. There's 25 of them altogether. Those weren't written to satisfy our curiosity as to how all the details worked out. That's not the point. It's not the purpose of Genesis to do that. But a key idea in Genesis will be that the God who makes himself known to Israel by the name Yahweh, and is their redeemer from bondage, both spiritual and physical, is the same God who created the heavens and the earth. That's the overriding point that Moses is making in this passage. It's the same God. The God that rescued you from Israel is the same God that created the heavens and the earth. He's the creator of everything, even those things that the current occupants of the land worship. Now, they had, they had exited Egypt... But, but the Canaanites are in front of them. So they've got this powerful nation, Egypt, behind them. And they've got the Canaanites in front of them. And Genesis is being written to say, you don't need to fear either one of them. You don't need to fear the Canaanites, or the Egyptians to the rear of you. You don't need to fear the Canaanites to the front of you. God, who created everything, created even the things that they worship. So if God created even the things that these two powerful peoples worship, you've got nothing to fear from them. If anything, we should fear God. Isn't that a novel concept? We, sh we should be in reverent respect to Him, not with trembling knees to the Egyptians or to the Canaanites. And he says, in essence, therefore, as long as I am with you, God will say, and we'll find out through the study of Genesis, and if you've been through Old Testament studies before, you'll know that's a very technical phrase in the Old Testament, in Hebrew Bible, with you. If He is with you, it means He's with you in a positive way. If He's with you, God says... You have nothing to fear from either the Egyptians behind you or the Canaanites in front of you. If I'm on your side, 
then you have nothing to fear from anything that I've created. And the application overflows to us as well. As long as we are rightly related to the God who created this universe, then we have nothing to fear from any aspect of his creation. Nothing to fear from any aspect of his creation. Whether that be illness, or whether that be another a foreign power, or whether it be terrorism, or whether it be a financial collapse. We've got nothing to fear if we're rightly related to the creator of all this. Sometimes I wished we lived in a, in a place where the atmosphere was a little bit clear. So we could go outside tonight. Some of you may be able to do this. Those of you that have traveled a long way to be here. You may be able to do it. Go outside tonight and look at those stars. And realize that's a small fraction. That's just a tiny, tiny fraction of the stars that are up there. The galaxies. Untold numbers of galaxies. And that same God who created all that loves you deeply. You personally. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what's in store for you tomorrow. And he's made a plan and provision for it. And that's absolutely stunning as far as I am concerned. So the application overflows to us as well. If you've studied this, and I know that I think everybody in this room has. This is a familiar passage. But those of you that are familiar with Genesis, particularly Genesis chapter 1, know very well that this particular chapter contains some of the most controversial material in all of literature. Not just in all the Bible, but in all of literature. It is a notoriously difficult passage for exegesis. And I'll talk about that in just a few more moments. Those who foolishly reject the existence of God scoff at the affirmations that are made in Genesis and attempt to come up with purely naturalistic explanations for the question of origin. That's one of those philosophical questions that any worldview has to answer, isn't it? How did we get here? You've got to answer that one before you say, where am I going? How did I get here in the first place? And if you reject Genesis foolishly, if, if, and that's what the scriptures will, will tell us, then you've got to come up with some other explanation. And on November 24th, 18. 59, Charles Darwin, the patron saint of atheism, gave it his best shot. And he published his book, which was originally titled, On the Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. I'm going to read that one time because I know most of you haven't heard that before. This was the original title, and this isn't one of those jokes. This is serious. On the origin of the species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. That is, of course, quite offensive. In a case you're wondering, the Darwinian view is that the northern European races were the favored races. We all know how this played out when the ethical application of Darwinian philosophy called eugenics was carried out to its extreme by Adolf Hitler. Now, there were eugenic scientists and philosophers in the United States at the same time there were in Germany. In fact, the center of eugenics, which is the... Eugenics is the ethical outworkings of Darwinian philosophy. Okay? That's what it's called, eugenics. There were actually more American philosophers and scientists who were into eugenics than there were in Europe. 
It's just that the American philosophers and scientists who are into eugenics, this normal outworking of Darwinian, uh, Darwinian, um, I almost said theology, but I guess it is, philosophy, they didn't take it as far as Hitler took it. The American eugenists in the early part of this, in the early part of the previous century, they wanted to sterilize those who were born mentally handicapped. Uh, that was as far as they really wanted to go with it, so that, that there wouldn't have been genetic inconsistencies that would have been promoted that way. But you have a man like Adolf Hitler that comes in and says, hey, listen, that's not going nearly far enough. If this is the way that it really is, if we're supposed to preserve the favored races, then they took it, he took it way farther than anybody over here had ever intended. And you know what happened in World War II. In fact, Hitler continued to believe even to the end, even, even after the military, all military hope was lost, even in his last few months, Hitler believed that if he could destroy the, quote, inferior races, end quote, with emphasis on the Jews, that he would win World War II. Even in his mind, even if he lost militarily, which he knew he was going to do at that point, he would still be victorious if he could eliminate what he considered to be the inferior Jewish race. All Hitler was doing was taking Darwinian theology, the, strong, the survival of the fittest, Darwinian philosophy, the survival of the fittest, and he was carrying it out way past what anybody had ever thought it would be carried out. But make no mistake, make no mistake, that's what he was doing. He thought he was doing a good thing. And... This was what he called, for those of you that have studied World War II, this is what he called his final solution. His final solution wasn't a military one. It was mass murder of people that he felt like were inferior to the German race. So that was the title of the book when it first came out. And then in biology class, I don't know about you, but I learned of this work by its revised title in the sixth edition that wasn't published until 13 years later. And that's, that's when it began to be called The Origin of the Species. Because even those who were, were Darwin's friends realized that that original title was massively offensive to anybody who's got any, any love in them at all, any common sense at all. That was massively offensive, and so they shortened it down to the origin of the species. But I want you to notice, even then, that Darwin did not make a serious attempt to study the origin of life, per se. But his emphasis was on a study of the origin of the species. Now, that, there's a difference there. From a scientific point of view, Darwin's best shot came up embarrassingly short. So short that a great number of scientists today are distancing themselves from Darwin's original views. Because they know there are some very embarrassing things in that whole original idea of Darwin that are are thoroughly unscientific, and so people are distancing themselves from Darwin. Nevertheless, there are still those holding on, like Oxford professor Richard Dawkins, who's written that Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Dawkins' standards in the field of intellectual fulfillment are obviously not very aggressive, <laughs> Uh, and I'll address some of those deficiencies in the Darwinian view as this study unfolds. That's not my primary point this morning, so let's move on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This simple affirmation 
is one of the most powerful statements in the Scriptures. In fact, I probably should read it this way with even a little bit more emphasis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It didn't just happen. God did it. It didn't come about by random forces in some imaginary idea called natural selection. God did it. We are not a product of time plus chance. God did it. And because he did it, he assumed ownership over it. To put it another way, God is the boss. To put it theologically, God is sovereign. It's very easy, as we begin a study of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, to become sidetracked by various issues. It's common for us to be so interested in how Genesis can help us serve some of the current debate issues like Darwinism or the age of the earth or are the days in Genesis literal 24-hour days or are they ages? What was the fruit in the garden? Who are the sons of God? And even when we get to Genesis chapter 6 and so many others, it's easy to become sidetracked, so easy that we miss the point, the indisputable point of the passage. There will be many disputable ideas in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I'm not saying it's not true. That's not, that's not what I'm saying at all. But in terms of our own congregation, there, there are going to be many of the, the, the aspects in Genesis chapter 1 particularly that are disputed. Some people are going to hold this view and some are going to hold this view. And the reason that there are so many different views about Genesis chapter 1 is because Genesis was not written to satisfy our curiosity as to the details of all the hows. There's an overriding message that cannot be missed. That if it's missed, shame on us. And the message is, is in the beginning, God, God created the heavens and the earth. And when, when David looks at this, he gets it. That's why he writes a psalm that says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He got it. And it's my prayer that we will get it as well. So the emphasis in this passage is on the sovereign majesty of God. If the God, if the God who created the universe and all that is in it is on your side, who can be against you? That was Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 8. He got it. Now, before I get into the specifics of the text itself this morning, let me emphasize that there is great controversy as to the specifics of the exegesis of, he, of this particular chapter, especially the first two verses. I have found that these first two verses were perhaps the most challenging verses that I've studied in the last 15 years. They are difficult verses. And Hebrew scholarship is all over the map when it comes to analysis of these verses. Ron Allen has his view. Al Ross has his view. Walter Kaiser has his view. Eugene Merrill has his view. And I just named you four of the most respected Hebrew scholars in the world. In fact, I don't know if he made it or not, but Ron Allen was supposed to be here this morning, and I don't see him right now, and it's okay with me that he didn't make it. <laughs> it, it because... This is, is a, you can't just go to a commentary and say, oh, this is what it means. Because you have four ultra-respected scholars like that that come up with different ideas about the exegesis of the passage. So, this is, this is not as easy 
as it might look at first glance. I've said before, and I'll emphasize it again now, Genesis is not written to satisfy our curiosities as to the details of the how God created the universe. Now, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong at all, with having a desire to understand these things. I do too. But it's a mistake to search so hard for specifics in Genesis, or any passage for that matter, that we miss the big picture. And by that I mean the message of the passage. That's where we make a mistake in our Bible study. Speaking of Genesis chapter 1, John Wolvert has said, or did say when he was living, that it's unwise to be dogmatic about anything in this chapter except for its overall message. It's unwise to be dogmatic about anything in this chapter except for its overall message. Norm Geisler echoed his comments years later when asked of his view of the age of the earth. This is how Dr. Geisler responded. And this, this response used to bother me terribly. Now, I understand why he said what he said. He said, on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I'm a young earth, 24-hour literal advocate. On Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I'm an old earth guy. On Sundays, I take a break. <laughs> the more you study it, the more you see that there are some very complicated issues here. But, even though there was a time when I thought that Dr. Geisler, for example, was doing a political tap dance to avoid the question, because he knows he has good friends on both sides of that particular issue, the more time I spend in the passage, the more I understand his statement. Most of you have formulated opinions, very strong opinions, concerning the specifics of this passage over the, over the last many years, and I respect that. Please, understand, I respect it. I, I got too much German in me. I have strong opinions, too. And I respect strong opinions. All I ask, though, is as we study Genesis, especially these first two chapters, that you listen objectively as we work through the text itself, through the text. There are some things that are indisputable in this chapter, and I will do my best to emphasize those things. The things that are without debate, the things that there's universal agreement on, even amongst like those four noted Hebrew scholars that I just mentioned. I'll, I'll do my best to emphasize that. And when expressing an opinion about disputed aspects of the text, I will make every effort to let you know that's what's happening. So there will be some times that I'm going to give you my opinion. And when I give you my opinion, I'll let you know that this is my opinion and that there is disagreement about it. The most competent expositors recognize the difficulties of this passage and stress the overall message of these verses and in the entirety of chapters 1 and 2. The God who created the universe is a sovereign, majestic God. If he's on your side, what do we have to be afraid of? Now, when you leave here, that's what I want you to remember. And you'll formulate your own opinions about whether they were day ages or whether they were 24-hour literal days. And, and I have strong opinions about that as well. But if you get so wrapped up in that that you don't see the message of the overall passage, we have failed. I've failed. As the, as the presenter of this information, I would have failed if I let you do that. That's why we begin with David's commentary on Genesis 1 in Psalm chapter 8. That's why we saw how David looked at it. That made it easier for me. 
when you have one part of the Scriptures that comment, they comments on another part of the Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit is writing both of them, that makes it easy. It takes a lot of the guesswork out of it for me. That's why we started with Psalm 8. And if you didn't happen to be here for that, uh, I'm sure John will get that, that tape available as, as soon as we can possibly get it out. David's method was sound in Psalm 8. He sought to understand what God was saying through his revelation and how we should personally respond to it. Over the last 15 years, I have been committed, personally committed, to preaching the message of a passage. That's where the real power lies in the presentation of God's Word. That's what's life-changing, the message of the passage. That's what's going to help you grow with regard to your relationship with Jesus Christ, the message of the passage. And I would like to stop now and say I owe a great debt to two men in this regard. One, a fellow by the name of Elliot Johnson. Some of you remember he's spoken at our church in the past. And another by the name of Dwight Pentecost. Dr. Johnson taught me this principle over the course of several semesters of independent studies in hermeneutics. And and this was a one-on-one thing. And then Dr. P modeled this for over five decades in the way that he preached the Word of God. So I am very appreciative for Elliot Johnson sitting me down and saying, Listen, Bruce, if you want your messages to be powerful then stick with what God is saying in that passage. Let Him speak to the people. That's why I do expository Bible preaching, meaning I'm going verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and we seek to understand what is God's message in that passage. That's where the power lies. Now, there's interest in the details, and to be sure, you've got to get the details down before you're going to get the overall message. Anybody who teaches exegesis knows that. So you've got to have details And then you've got to have the big picture. Then once you understand the big picture better, then you can go back and look at the details and you'll understand them better. Then you can go back and look at the big picture better. It's a never-ending thing. Long, long, long before I went into the ministry, I worked in an office and my my boss was a beloved friend, but uh, did not understand why I went to church every evening to go to Bible study. And one day, he would try all kinds of things. I love this. I love him. So to this day, I love him dearly. But he, one, this was back when the Oilers were good, and he got, got his tickets to Monday Night Football when it was in Houston. Now, how can you pass that up? Come on, man, how can you pass that up? So we went to Monday Night Football, or he'd get tickets to a baseball game or something that he knew I wanted to go, anything he could do to kind of break that cycle. And one day he just got so frustrated, he says, Hey, man, when are you going to finish that book? <laughs> and I said, That's a good question. I, I, hope, I hope never. Because once, once you go over passage, then you're going to come back to it again later, and it's going to be richer for you, more beautiful for you. We've studied Genesis before. It's been a number of years. I haven't never studied it on Sunday morning, but we've studied it before. But even if you went through that study, I think this will be even richer for you this time. My understanding is certainly better than it was in the past. So I'm committed to preaching a message that is God's message, the message that is a powerful message, Yes, we'll go over some of the details, and I'm about to do that. Yes, we'll go over some of the details, particularly the exegetical details. But don't miss the big picture, because if you do, I would have failed, and I certainly don't want to fail there. Now, here's something that I personally found in my study for the preparation of preaching this particular passage, even this lesson, is that even though Hebrew scholarship 
is all over the map, with all due respect to the, the great doctors that I mentioned before, even though they're all over the map, when it comes to analyzing the details, the exegetical details of this chapter, particularly the first two verses, they are not all over the map when it comes to their conclusions as to the message of the passage. And isn't that interesting? I once read a book uh, by C.S. Lewis on studies in the Psalms. Now, I love Lewis as a philosopher. He's, uh, I've read, I think I have read everything that Lewis has written from a non-fiction point of view. And I love him as a philosopher, but that book on reflections in the Psalms is a difficult book for me to stomach because his method is far different than mine. But one of the interesting things is, as he works through each of these reflections, and I, would, I, just, I just cringe, I thought, oh no, Jack. That's what his friends call him, so I'm so I'm calling him to. Jack! <laughs> Don't do that! You're never going to end up in with the right conclusion if you, if you do it that way. And then I get to the last page of the chapter, and he, he got it. He, he was right about, I don't know how in the world he got it, but he got it. And that's kind of how I look at this, these verses in Genesis. Hebrew scholarship is all over the map. You can't just say, I'm going to settle this, and I'm going to go to a computer program, and I'm going to open up a commentary on Genesis. And look here, Bruce, you're wrong. Or look here, Bruce, you're right. It's going to depend on which one you open up. So even though they're all over the map about the details when you, when you look at their conclusions, they're not all over the map about that. That's beautiful. And that means the Holy Spirit is working through them. Now, I'm not an advocate of poor method, please. I'm an advocate of good method. But sometimes the Holy Spirit can even override method that is poor. So I think that the agreement there is absolutely fantastic. Now, having said all that, that's my introduction. There are three things, three things that I will dogmatically assert at the beginning of this study. These, thing, these three things I will be dogmatic about. And the first is this. Genesis is history. It is not myth. And that includes the entirety of the first 11 chapters. Genesis history. It is not myth. And that includes the entirety of the first 11 chapters. There are some, not any of the ones I just mentioned to you at all. Nobody from my seminary, any seminary in close to it. But there are some that believe, that are beginning to believe that Genesis 1 through 11 is not history, that it's myth. But that, that I dogmatically deny. Genesis is history. Jesus thought it was history. The apostles wrote as if it was history. That settles it. You know that, that whole thing, Jesus said it, I believe it, and that settles it? Jesus said it, said it and that settles it. Listen, you leave the middle part out. That settles. The second thing that I'll dogmatically assert, the universe has been in existence for a limited period of time. The universe has been in existence for a limited period of time. God alone is infinite. Matter did not exist co-eternally with God. So the universe had a beginning. I will dogmatically assert that. The universe has been in existence for a limited period period of time. It's not my purpose today to tell, tell you how long I think that was. But all of us have to agree that it was a limited period of time. We don't have matter eternally existing alongside of God eternally existing. That, that the Bible categorically denies. God created matter, which means matter had a beginning, which means it's been in existence for a limited period of time. And if the universe had a beginning, then we understand the universe had a beginner. 
And the third thing that I will stand dogmatically and say is that God is both imminent and transcendent. Now, I know those are $100 theological words, so let me explain them this way. God is imminent in that he, it means he, he has interaction with you and with me. I, I said a minute ago as I began this, he cares for you deeply. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. That's how much he cares for you. He cares about what you're going through right now. He is, he is very much involved with his creation. But on top of that, God is transcendent, which means he exists outside of and independently of his creation. You see that? So those are $100 theological words, but transcendence means, look at transcendence like a big umbrella, and God's on the outside of that umbrella. And so he exists independently of his creation. That's what we mean by the transcendence of God. But he's also imminent. Now, this is not imminent, like the imminency of the rapture. This is imminent. He's imminent, and that means that he also interacts with his creation. To give you an example, very, very briefly, there was a philosophy called deism that was popular about the time our country was founded. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Benjamin Franklin, started off, Benjamin Franklin started off as a deist. Thomas Paine was a deist. I don't know about Franklin, whether he became a theist. I don't think he ever became saved. But, but these people believe that God is transcendent, but not imminent. That he created everything, and then he has nothing to do with it after that. It's a sad philosophy. But the pantheist believes exactly the opposite. They believe that God is, is imminent, in, in a different way than Christians do, but imminent in the sense that he is everywhere present, but they deny his transcendence. They don't believe that he exists outside of his creation. But these are the three statements that I will dogmatically assert as we begin this study. Genesis, his, Genesis is history. It is not myth. And that includes the entirety of the first 11 chapters. With all respect to those who want to start Genesis at chapter 12. Second, the universe has been in existence for a limited period of time. God alone is infinite. Now, Kant, is my understanding, denied that. But the Bible affirms it. Everything that came into being, he created. So, the universe has been in existence for a limited period of time. God alone is infinite. Matter did not coexist eternally with God, so the universe had a beginning. Now, there are some in cosmology that will call that the Big Bang, and we'll talk about that at another time. And the third thing that I will say dogmatically, God is both imminent and transcendent. He exists independently of and outside of his creation, but he also interacts with his creation in a personal way. Now, that's what makes the God of the Bible so unique and so wonderful. The fact that he's transcendent, we love. But if it wasn't for his imminence, we would have no hope. None whatsoever. Now, in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first word, actually a compound word, as many are in Hebrew, Bereshit, in the beginning, is in the absolute state, meaning that it functions independently of any other word. And in fact, all of verse 1 is an independent clause and a complete sentence. I know that's a bit complicated to begin with, but it's important. All of verse 1 is an independent clause and is a complete sentence in and of itself. Therefore... This is the application of that. I would reject the rendering of verse 1 by some newer translations that reads this way. Verses 1 through 3. When, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth being without form and void, God said, dot, dot, dot. I would reject that because it doesn't fit the normative use of the Hebrew grammar there. It's a complete sentence in and of itself. 
Genesis 1, verse 1, commits itself, commits the entirety of the Scriptures to an absolute beginning of everything outside of God. It commits itself to an absolute beginning of everything outside of God. So in the beginning, God, and this word for God is Elohim. Elohim is a, is a plural word, actually. The Hebrew word for God in the singular is El, E-L. But when you put an I-M on the end of a Hebrew word, it makes a Hebrew noun, it makes it plural. So the word Elohim can either be some sort of majestic plurality, that's what the Jews uh, would hold to, that's what we would hold to as well in, in another sense that, from them actually. But we would capitalize, when we see the word Elohim here, we capitalize it G-O-D, capital G-O-D. In other places in the, New, in the Hebrew Bible, the word Elohim can mean the gods with a little g. But here it's speaking of the infinite personal God of the universe. In the beginning, God created. The word for created here is very important as well. The word for created here is bara. It's spelled B-A-R-A, bara. The word bara is one of several Hebrew verbs for creative activity. There's the word yatsar, which is ordinarily translated to fashion. Asa is typically translated to make or something along those lines. And bana, to build. So bara is not the only Hebrew verb for creation. But it is a unique Hebrew verb. All of these words that I mentioned has God as the subject of that activity at one time or another. At one time or another, we, we see that God baras something, if you'll forgive me for butchering the language. At, at, at some time or another, God yatsars something. At some time or another, God asas something. At some time or another, God banas something. But in the Hebrew Bible, the word bara that's found here, only God is the subject of that verb. Anywhere in the Hebrew Bible, the only person, the only being that baras something, B-A-R-A, the only person that does that in Hebrew Bible is God. So this is a unique verb. Only God performs this action. It does not mean specifically, we cannot go so far as to say the word bara means specifically that God created something out of nothing. Now, we can't do that from the verb. We can do that from the context here and from the rest of the scriptures. But we can't do it simply from the verb, although it is certainly implied here. The word bara summarizes the work of God in producing what human beings never produce or even think to produce. That's why this is, word is unique. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the word is used of the act of God in creating the universe and everything in it. Now, the phrase that comes later, heavens and the earth, that's a Hebrew figure of speech for the entirety of the universe. We can't just take the terms separately and come up with the proper meanings, like the, like the word pine and apple. You have a pine tree and an apple, but a pineapple is something different from a from a pine tree and an apple. Well, here, when we see the, it's a figure of speech, the term heaven and the earth is a particular figure of speech in Hebrew Bible that means the entirety of the universe. So while bara itself may not specifically mean creation out of nothing, when we get to the last phrase, we know that's exactly what happened because everything outside of God, he created. Everything outside of God, he created. Now, there are some things that we perverted like we perverted good and evil exists. That doesn't mean God created evil. But everything outside of himself, he created.
created. With regard to this creation out of nothing idea, the Jews historically had this understanding of original creation. That was always their idea, that he created out of nothing. And if they didn't get it from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, I have no idea where they got it from. Uh, In the New Testament, it's much clearer. It, It becomes crystal clear to us because the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, said, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what was seen was not made out of the things that are visible. So God did create out of nothing. The word bara, and I don't mean to get too technical with you in these last few moments, but the word bara is in the perfect tense. That's the particular verb tense of this unique verb. The verb, the perfect use of bara, which again means to create, or translated, he created, may indicate either an event that precedes the main storyline or a summary of the main storyline itself. Those are the two options that we face. And again, here's where Hebrew scholarship is, with all due respect, all over the map. You can't just go to a commentary and say, well, that settles it. Those are the two primary options. It is either a standalone statement that's a past completed action, or, and it, and it, it precedes the entire storyline that will go before it, uh, follow it, rather, or it's a summary of everything that's going to follow it. Now, the normal usage... This is where I told you I would be as clear as I could to you when things are up for dispute. But the normal usage of the perfect at the beginning of a pericope, or a a story if you prefer, is to denote an event that took place before the storyline begins. That's the normal use. There are two exceptions to this in the Pentateuch. Two exceptions, Exodus 19.1 and Genesis 22.1. But every other case, the normal usage is to express something that has been completed. To summarize then, Genesis 1.1 is a complete, standalone sentence. Everything outside of God had an absolute beginning. Second, the main verb, bara, is in the perfect tense, and in all likelihood references an event that has already been completed. That's the normative way that that would be used in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The the verb bara is used only of God's creative activity. Bara itself does not speak of creation out of nothing, but the context here certainly allows for that understanding. And when we get to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, it confirms that understanding. And I have no problem allowing the New Testament to confirm or to help clear up some Uh, potential ambiguities in the Old Testament. The heavens and the earth is a figure of speech which refers to the entire universe and everything in it. Now, admittedly, this begins with a bit of difficulty. But I noticed I kept most of your attention as we began this. There are details, and then there's the big picture. Details, and then the big picture. But the big picture is this, and please, please leave here today with this in mind even if I've already stepped on your toes exegetically. (laughs) The God who makes himself known to Israel by the name Yahweh and is their redeemer from bondage, both spiritual and physical, is the same God who created the universe and everything in it. He is the creator of everything, even those things that the current occupants of the land at the time Moses writes this worship. Therefore, as long as I am with you, God says... 
You have nothing to fear either from the, from the Egyptians to your rear or the Canaanites that are before you. And the application to us, to me, is transparent. As long as we are rightly related to the God who created the universe and everything in it, we have nothing to fear from any aspect of his creation. Now, as I close our time together today, I do want to stress, as long as you're rightly related to God. None of us are born rightly related to God. We're all born with a problem. None of us can do enough good works to be rightly related to God. But because God is both imminent and transcendent, because he cares for you, he sent his son to die as a substitute for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us in this way. We look forward to the study, and we bow our knee before you and say with David, O Yahweh, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.